We're in our series, as Dale said, called Future Church. Each week, we're, we're looking at a, a challenge that we're facing in, in our culture that as we're reemerging um, as a church and start, starting to regather. And um, we're trying to lay out a vision for a, a kind of alternative society we want to be as a church community. And then at the end of each teaching, we give you a, pra- give you a practice that's a part of our rule of life, our ongoing rule of life that we've been expanding. Um, so we move towards this vision together. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be talking about being a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear through the practice of silence and solitude. That's a, a mouthful, but hopefully we get through all of it today. Let me read a, a few verses of scripture, scripture and then, um, then I'm going to pray. I'm going to read Luke 5.15, and I'm also going to read Isaiah 26.3. So let me just let me read these. You can sit and... Um, receive these as God's word to us today. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you um, for this morning. I thank you for those that are in the room um, and for those that are at home. We thank you that our church, uh, though it's scattered, we can be gathered still around the presence of God. And what a mysterious, beautiful thing that you promise that you make a home in our hearts. You make a home in our lives. Like we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we gather even as we gather in ways that are virtual and ways that are here in the room, this, like, this spirit that lives inside all of us as temples of the Holy Spirit unite together into becoming the house of God. What a beautiful thing, God. Thank you. I thank you for Bridgetown and uh, our, our sister church in Portland who we're collaborating this, with this series on. We pray that as we kind of join forces to, to um, teach this series, God, that you would form the future of your church, our churches at least, um, to be salt and light in the world. And I pray, God, you would anoint me, um, allow my body, my mind, my voice, um, everything to match um, the heartbeat of this, of this teaching, the things that you want to communicate through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, my favorite uh, freeway is the 280 um, from, from uh, San Francisco all the way down to the valley. I like it because if you've ever noticed, it doesn't have a single distracting billboard or sign on the freeway. Um, just mountain, reservoir, lake, fog most of the times, and road. Now in, in a pandemic, open road. Just open road. You just go. Uh, Henry Nowen once wrote about driving across to LA and every surface covered in words due to advertising. He said it felt like driving through a dictionary. Where I looked, he writes, there were words trying to take my eyes from the road. They said, use me, take me, buy me, drink me, smell me, touch me, kiss me, sleep with me. He writes that the threat to our spiritual life is that words no longer hold creative power to transform us. They are just white noise to our brain. We live our lives under the dictatorship of noise. We live in a society where it seems that every space, every moment must be filled with projects, 
activities, and information. And I'm not just talking about the kind of noise that makes sound. I'm talking about noise that pulls our mind into a million places, wanting us to watch this, or consume that, or do this, or use me, take me, buy me, drink me, smell me, touch me, kiss me, sleep with me. And it's everywhere. A couple years ago on on a Sabbath uh, walk, Ash and I went for a walk down by Fort Mason, and we walked through um, around the cliff to the other side by the piers, and we happened upon a little beer festival going on. And so we did some sampling of some beer, and we loved this one cider that someone had. And, and uh, I'm like, oh, this is a really good cider, and like, he should, you should take a picture of this and buy this at Whole Foods. And I was like, I don't, have my, I don't have my phone. He's like, oh, grab your wife's phone. And I'm like, she doesn't have her phone with her either. And he looked at us like we were from another planet. He's like... <laughs> I told him that once a week we try to not be tethered to our devices so we take a walk without our phones. And he said, that's a little extreme, bro. That's just a little extreme. And then he started lecturing me about how the phone is not bad at all. It's just a tool like fire. And I said, yes, it's very true. And we always keep fire in our pockets, which does not feel safe at all. <laughs> there's, there's different data around phone usage, but one study found that the average person is on their phones three hours and 15 minutes a day. And people touch their phone up to 2,500 times a day. And the number goes up nearly double that for millennials. We know because many of us who are part of our church work for the companies or are the companies that try to get people more and more addicted to their phones. Of course, we don't call it addiction to phones. We say user engagement or something amoral like that. But we know it's addiction. An addiction for monetization, to make money where the user is actually the product. And the result is the noise of our world hasn't gotten any louder in volume, just louder in influence. Again, we live under the dictatorship of noise. The Ghanan-born Archbishop Robert Cardinal Sarah writes in his magnificent book, The Power of Silence. He says, quote, modern society can no longer do without the dictatorship of noise. It lulls us into an illusion of cheap democracy while snatching our freedom away with subtle violence of the devil, the father of lies. Without noise, postmodern man falls into a dull, incessant uneasiness and is accompanied or accustomed to, he is accustomed to permanent background noise, which sickens yet reassures him. Without noise, man is feverish, lost. Noise gives him security like a drug on which he has become dependent. With its festive appearance, noise is a whirlwind that avoids facing itself. Agitation becomes a tranquilizer, a sedative, a morphine pump. But noise is dangerous, a deceptive medicine, a diabolic lie that helps man avoid confronting himself in his interior emptiness. The awakening will necessarily be brutal. The awakening will necessarily be brutal is what I'll get to at the end of this teaching. Noise begets agitation. Noise produces anxiety. This is how noise works. I always remember that scene from that series Lost where they're interrogating or they're torturing that guy and they put him in that really loud room. Remember that really loud room that has all that rock music playing the whole time with all those images flashing on the screen to make him go crazy? Noise works like that. It's either the subtle agitation of how you don't have enough or how you aren't enough. This is what noise does, especially the noise of our phones. 
how you need to look like this person or that influencer, influencer or the anxiety to be like them or to do this. Or, you know what, you really must, must watch this new show that came out. Or you really must listen to this one podcast. Or you have to read this article. And you're frustrated that you haven't and that you haven't enough time to do that. This is how noise works. It's a kind of dictator telling you what to do next or who to be next. And it's leading to a culture of fear, but not in the way you think it is. We have two layers of fear in life. We have surface fears and we have deep fears, like base level fears. Surface fears are the things that noise keeps us thinking about. Noise keeps us on the surface of our life and even of our fears. It keeps us in things like the fear of missing out or the fear of not knowing what's going on or the fear of missing a call or a text or an email or fear of the person getting away with saying that thing online without someone letting them know how wrong they are. Whatever that fear is, that's the fear it keeps us at, that, that surface fear. And these surface fears that noise and distraction keep us in also keep us from going under the surface to where our base fears are the deep fears that actually run our life, fears that are motivating us, the fears underneath the fears or underneath the anger or outrage or our detachment. They are really two layers of fears. And like Robert Cardinal Sarah said, noise gives us security of never having to get down into our deep base level fears. So the noise of our world acts as a powerful narcotic For good and for bad, the good is that a narcotic soothes and protects against raw pain, which can sometimes be good, but a narcotic can also be bad, especially when it becomes a way of escaping reality. Our noise narcotics shield us from having to face the deeper issues of our life. Things like our phones and entertainment can be set against the interior life by keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted that we lose focus on deeper things. What is being created by the tech industry has made our lives efficient and has also conspired against depth. And the result is that our life starts to be made up of distractions and surface-level anger that takes the form of deeply embedded, unconscious illusions about the self or God and others. And these distortions orient us towards psychological, behavioral, and spiritual attachments toward compulsions and addictions, which over time lead to just general unhappiness. And even if you don't struggle with addiction of the chemical sort, our addictions take the form of compulsions to find our identity in what Henry Nouwen called what we have, what we do, and what others say about us. We become enslaved to our unconscious impulses and do everything we can to satiate our inner discontent Nonstop scrolling through social media, which only magnifies our unhappiness. Unnecessary shopping in hopes that more stuff will make us feel better, and it doesn't. Or overeating or drinking to drown out and dull the inner ache. And so we have a number of escape routes from this pain that we live in. But the path of transformation is learning how to be with the pain and with our deep fears so new life can emerge in and through us. This is the whole point of silence, which is what makes silence so dang scary. This is why many of us are afraid of silence and solitude. 
We are afraid of being alone in the woods, silent. That sounds like a horror movie. That does not sound like real life. That's a horror movie. Actually, it literally is a horror movie. And this is what we're really afraid of. We're really afraid of being alone and being silent, of being alone with nothing but God. No Bible, no journal, no phone, no stimulation, just us and God. This almost sounds like a horror movie. I know there are many who deal in our church that deal with a lot of anxiety. And the thing with anxiety is that it feels like there's always a, a level of anxious noise within us, not even from outside of us, but within our own minds. And silence, well, all silence seems to do with people who struggle with anxiety is it turns up the volume of anxious noise in our minds. And the way many of us have learned to control this inner noise of anxiety is with other noise. So you put on a podcast or a show or you start scrolling. Why? Well, it gives your mind something to focus on. That's why we do it. I mean, I understand this all too well. Dallas Willard said this in the book, Spirit of Discipline. He said, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life. It reminds us of death, which will cut us off from this world and leave us leave only us and God. And in that quiet, what if there turns out to be very little to just us and God? Think what that says about the inward emptiness of our lives if we must always turn on the tape player or radio to make sure something is happening around us. Tape player, podcasts, radio, Netflix, you know, you get it. When we use noise to drown out noise, that might sound like a good plan. I've been there, believe me. But you're dealing with the symptom and not the disease. You're trying to fight fire with fire, and that's very dangerous. Our surface fears and the noise in our world that hold us there are a kind of deception that keep us from accessing the deeper fear and therefore keeping us from confronting our false self and thus being truly free to live in God's love and presence. Let me say that again, because that's a big mouthful. Our surface fears and the noise in our world that hold us in the, on the surface is a kind of deception that keeps us from actually going deeper into our deep fears, our base fears. And because we're not confronting the deep things that drive us, our addictions and compulsions, the way that we try to show up in the world, and we, therefore, we, because we don't confront those things, we never confront our false self. And because we never confront our false self, we can't really be free in God to live in God's presence and love out of our true selves. Like I said, we have a number of escape routes from pain, but the path of transformation is learning how to be with the pain and fear so that new life can emerge through us. Silence and solitude teaches us how to do that. In Luke 5, that we, what we read at the very beginning of our, uh, of our time, it says that Jesus, who, who's our teacher and our master at this, often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Look at verse 15 again. As news about Jesus spread all the more, this is after Jesus' healing, this is after Jesus telling people that he healed, not to tell people that he healed them, but they can't keep quiet, and they tell people, and more people start coming out. Think noise. And for Jesus, this is good noise, right? This is endless distractions, but all kinds of good distractions, like heal me and, um, and make us well and teach us about the kingdom. All, I mean, imagine if Jesus had DMs. Like, it would be insane. This is like Jesus, everyone's coming after Jesus. The more that the crowds came after him, it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It was as if, like, when 
when things ramped up, that's when Jesus went away more often. The phrase lonely places is one word in Greek. It's edamos in Greek, edamos. It can be translated the lonely place or the quiet place or the solitary place or in biblical imagery, it can be translated, some translations call this the wilderness or the desert. Now, the lonely place, this edamos, is a place of subtraction, not addition. It's a place where things come off where things get removed, stripped away, so that your soul can be exposed to the loving warmth of God and you can name and identify false identities. More on that in a second. This is what the edamos is for. It's so you can get exposed to God and layers of yourself can start to come off. And the edamos was part of the rhythm of Jesus' life. This was his rule of life, if you will. Listen to a few other translations of Luke 5. New Living Translation says, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. NCV says, Jesus often slipped away to be alone so he could pray. The message, as often as possible, Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. Now, the question is, why did Jesus often as possible withdraw to lonely places, to the desert, sometimes literal deserts, to pray? And some of you might go, because he's an introvert. That's why. That's, that's not why. That's not the answer. That's not the Bible answer, Okay. It seems that the more Jesus was in demand, the more work and responsibility were put on him, the more he would slip away to the quiet, to the lonely places to be alone with the Father. See, most of the demands on Jesus' time were good demands, but to follow these demands, to follow every single immediate need, these, these were to him a kind of distraction, even though they were good distractions, that would have kept Jesus living on the surface of his life and mission. The edamos for Jesus was his centering point, the place he lived out of, the place he retreated to so that he would come into fellowship and union and exposure to the Father. And then Jesus would live out of this place and he would carry union and fellowship and identity and the will of the Father everywhere he went. This is the hope and the goal of silence and solitude, to cultivate this edamos, this quiet place, this lonely place with God. Silence is being with God and God alone. Silence is being with God and God alone. Now, what I wanna do for the rest of this teaching is I wanna teach you about silence and solitude and stillness. So I'm just gonna, I'll call, it, I'll call it all of those things. It's silence, it's solitude, it's stillness, or I might just say silence, or I might say all three, it's that. I wanna help our church begin to practice this, and I wanna show why these, this is like the goal and the aim of, for the follower of Jesus, and why it's like one of the core practices of our all-church rule of life. First, I want you to think of silence as a container. Think of silence as a seedbed for all the other spiritual practices to flourish. For example, without regular silence, we won't be able to get in touch with our true hungers when we fast. We won't be able to get scripture from our head to our hearts. Without silence, we won't be able to truly rest on Sabbath. Without silence, we won't be able to hear the inner voice of our true vocation. We won't be able to practice generosity with free hearts. And without silence, we won't be able to live in community with our true selves coming out, not just showing up with our false selves, trying to be liked and accepted all the time. Silence and solitude is so vital to your life with God as a follower of Jesus. Now, let me define some terms and share some history because I think this is really important. 
Silence and solitude is known by other names. You might have heard this called meditation or contemplation or mindfulness or mindful silence or practicing the presence of God or listening prayer or welcoming prayer or centering prayer or Emmanuel prayer. There are so many different names for silence and solitude. The most common way to speak about this, if you're picking up writings on this, is contemplative spirituality. Contemplative spirituality or simply put, the contemplative life. Think of it like this. Silence and solitude, traditionally called contemplative spirituality, is the inner work of creating the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to build in you an inner sanctuary where you can commune with God, unite with God's will, and enjoy his presence. I'll unpack that in a second. But I think it's, it's really important to talk about how contemplative spirituality is not new nor is it adopted from Buddhism or Hinduism or psychology. See, yoga and meditation was brought into the mainstream in America or the West through San Francisco. So everyone in San Francisco meditates, every single person. Everyone says, yeah, I meditated this morning, I wake up and I meditate. Everyone meditates, everyone practices. I do mindfulness and silence and I do yoga. Everyone does this. And then the church starts to lead in this way. You're like, oh, you guys are just like copying all this stuff. No, 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 there's a rich tradition in the contemplative way in Christianity. And this is really important that you know this. First of all, it starts with Jesus. We just read it. Luke chapter five, Jesus often went alone to be in quiet, desolate places to pray. And as Christianity developed, contemplation was normalized in practicing the way of Jesus by the second century. We see clear expression of the tradition in the writings of the desert mothers and fathers in the third and fourth centuries. As we talked about in our intro teaching two weeks ago, when Constantine made Christianity the religion of Rome, following Jesus got enmeshed with empire and the church began to lose its prophetic voice. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all, I'm just saying. And so desert fathers and mothers led a counter movement, one that evolved into what we know today as monasticism. We talked about this two weeks ago. And monasticism, or the ways of the desert mothers and fathers um, at the very beginning, was was an intense way of silence and solitude as an act of resistance and following the way of Jesus. And for a few hundred years, Christianity was synonymous with contemplative life. It was synonymous. So much so there wasn't even a name for it. It was called Christianity. How do you practice Christianity? You're silent. You're with Jesus, you're cultivating the fruit of the spirit within, you're meeting with God, and then from this place you live out your, your orthodoxy, or you live, you live out what you believe, but it starts with this very deep contemplative life where the inner work of the spirit like terraforms your soul. Now fast forward to 1054. The church split into two. This was called the Great Schism that divided the church into Greek East and Latin West. Which, was, which became known as the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And the contemplative part of church was mainly associated with the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and thus the Western Catholic Church viewed the contemplative tradition being an Eastern thing and kind of distanced itself from it. But then the, the divide got even bigger after the Reformation, 
when Protestants, which is our stream and our tradition, where we call ourselves Protestants, we detached even further from this tradition of spiritual formation when we detached from the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church throughout contemplative tradition in this Eastern way altogether. Now add to this the Enlightenment, which went on right after the breakup of the Protestants, the break off from Protestants from the Catholics. And what happened with, was with Protestants, they put all their eggs in the basket of rationalism. And that swept through the church in the West. And so everyone in the church in the West mainly were just a bunch of rationalists that whenever we have questions of the dark side of God, like the side of God that we don't understand, we try to write books to make it make sense. Why? Because we're rationalists. But the church has this rich tradition of contemplative spirituality where you're like, where you think with deeper senses, where you grasp whole concepts and not just, not just rational concepts, where, you, where you're left with all these holes in your theology, but this whole body, like this whole contemplative side of, of mystery, thus mysticism in Christianity, which scares a lot of people when you bring that up. We taught a series on that like three years ago and scared a ton of people. Like, what the heck, mysticism? Like, yeah, it's very, very, very original to Paul. So we'll just start there. It's original to Paul. And so the result is this, the death of the contemplative tradition altogether. And so today, when we talk about this stuff, it sounds like we're talking about Buddhism or mindfulness or Hinduism or yoga or whatever, psychology. We're actually talking about historic Christianity. Now, we've been talking about this for years now. In our series that we did a few years ago, Everyday Mystic, which I recommend everyone go back and listen to, I'll say now what I said then. We must reclaim this vital part of our Christian heritage and tradition. I think it's the only way to, to live into the, uh, the way of Jesus in, in our orthopraxy, not just orthodoxy. The, the Western church, Protestants, are all big about, like, what's your statement of faith? And that thing, due to... Postmodernism, due to the secular moment, that, those things are being shred apart. We need to be people that not just have an orthodoxy, but have an orthopraxy, a way that we practice the way of Jesus, which is why uh, the master of this, Nowen, Henry Nowen, says this. The mystics all agree that silence is the royal road to spiritual formation. I have never met anyone seriously interested in the spiritual life who did not have a growing desire for silence. As long as our hearts and minds are filled with the words of our own making, there is no space for the word to enter deeply into our hearts and bear fruit. In and through silence, the word of God descends from the mind into the heart where we can ruminate on it, chew it, digest it, and let it become flesh and blood in us. This is the meaning of meditation. Without silence, the word of God, without silence, the word cannot become our inner guide. Without meditation, it cannot build its home in our hearts and speak from there. Okay, that was a giant rabbit trouble. Let's come back to the definition that I shared a second ago of what is silence and solitude trying to do. Silence and solitude, contemplative spirituality, is the inner work of creating the emotional and spiritual space, interior solitude, which allows Christ to build in you an inner sanctuary where you can commune with God, unite with God's will, and enjoy his presence. Now, imagine your favorite physical place you meet with God. For some of you, it might be back right here in real life church. 
For others, you love to pop into a, a church and be silent at a church that's opened up. Or for me, it's Big Sur in a cabin next to a river with a fire going, a being alone with God. I like that's my happy place. That's my that's like my inner that's my sanctuary. Now the goal of silence and solitude is taking taking the time and making the space to let Jesus build that place in your inner life so you can go there to be with God anytime. That's the hope. So it's, for me, it's like that place that I feel so connected to with God when I'm in Big Sur, creating that in my soul so I can be there when I'm in an airport, remember those things, and am late to a flight. I can go there to be with God. When I'm in the middle of a meeting and it's getting chaotic and everyone has their own opinion and I, I have my opinion and it's typically right or whatever, and I go there to be with God, that sort of thing. What now one calls building God, a God building a home in our hearts to speak from there. This is what Jesus was getting at in John 15 where he said, abide in me. Abide is the verb form of the noun abode or home. In Greek, it's the word meno. It means to make your home in God and let God make his home in you. This is captured really well in Eugene Peterson's translation of that scripture. Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. It's that thing. Now, to be fair, silence and solitude might sound cute and fuzzy right now. As I explain it, you're like, oh, that, I want that in my heart. Oh, that sounds so fun. But silence and solitude is the most intense of all the spiritual practices, and it's also the most misunderstood. Let me just talk about why silence and solitude is misunderstood. It's misunderstood because for a lot of people, especially introverts, I don't know if there's any introverts here today, silence and solitude is typically translated me time. When I say silence and solitude, you're like, me time, amen. This is it. This is my favorite sermon of the year right here, me time. The time to recharge your batteries or kind of do what you want to do. Matt Barrios, who is... Um, on our staff says, text me that he said, he says, my two cents about silence and solitude as an introvert are this. There is a distinction between wanting to be alone versus wanting to be alone with God. Silence and solitude exists for the second. That's well said. My other really close friend and other introvert, John Mark Homer says that for introverts, we, they tend to turn silence and solitude into a spiritual justification of narcissism. He said that. I didn't say it. <laughs> like, it's his excuse or uh, introvert's excuse to escape from kids or the spouse or friends to be alone with God and call it a spiritual discipline <laughs> when really they're just being unloving and they just want to be alone. But I would also say this, according to my wife and watching my wife, who's also an introvert, it's also hard for introverts to practice this because they feel guilty that they're just doing what they like. It's really hard for them. Like, I, I can't, I just, I just want that. So I, I can't be that, I just want it. But for extroverts, which I'm an extrovert, we have the tendency to write off silence and solitude because we don't think we need it. We're like, well, I don't get my energy from being alone. I get my energy from people and from movement and from like coffee and like all these things. I, that's where I get my, so you know, I'm not, I don't really need silence and solitude. You need, introverts need that because they need to recharge, but extroverts don't need that. All these things are misunderstood. They're all a lie. That's not, none of that is true. Introverts and extroverts need this. Introverts need it because it's not you time, it's time with God. Did I say introverts? Introverts need it. Extroverts need it because most of the time you're just buzzing around. You think you're being productive, but 
God is no, like you just think you're hearing God because you, your body feels so energized with people. Well, that's not really God. That's just you just getting excited about something. And sometimes, most times, those aren't the same thing. But silence and solitude is also the most intense of all the spiritual practices. Because remember, the lonely place, the quiet place of Jesus is not about addition, it's about subtraction. And silence and solitude is where things come off, where parts of our, ourselves get removed, stripped away, so our, your soul can get exposed to the loving warmth and acceptance of God, and you can name and identify your false identities. So how does this work? And I'm, 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 I'm kind of landing the plane here. How does this work? Well, first off, being alone and entering the place where interior solitude is built in you are not the same. Being alone and being alone with God where this interior solitude is being built are two different things. A lot of us live life at a surface level of our fears and are still dominated by our attachments and our control, our affection and our security. We're attached to control, affection, and security, what Thomas Ketting called the programs for happiness which can't possibly work. What he meant by that is that we're all born with a human desire for control, affection, and security. Every single person is born with this. It's God-given. But as we grow and develop, these things are never really satisfied in us and through our family of origin. And so our desire is to get these needs met in, in uh, the, the, the desire to get these needs met grow large in us, and then we form an attachment to gratifying this need through our performance or manipulation or our own power. And this part of us that gratifies our needs through performance, manipulation, or power is called the false self. It's what Thomas Merton called the false self. So that might be confusing. Let me try to give you an example for me. My program for happiness is control. I grew up in a home that my therapist calls a sinking ship. He's like, you grew up on a sinking ship. I'm like, that sounds very hopeful. <laughs> and so therefore, what you learn, to, you learn to try and save people, try and help people, and try to control the environment so it's stable enough for people to feel safe. But my false self thinks that I have to do this all alone that I have to do this in my own power. I have to do this through manipulation. I have to do this through striving. I have to do this through scheming. This, that's the false self, that's false attachments. So I get attached to that thing, and every single time things get chaotic, I run to these attachments. And I try to, 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 to settle the waters, to settle the boat through these attachments, through striving, or manipulation, or my own power, or my own strength. None of it's in the Holy Spirit's power, it's my own power, these are attachments. We all have our own. Now, what does all this have to do with silence and solitude? As we begin to settle into dedicated time, silent with God and God alone, through the help of prayer practices, we will start to see tangible things take place in the interior of our lives. God will start to put his finger on and these things will emerge. Here's the thing. When we first start silence and solitude, when these things emerge, we think they're us. But as we do this more and more, there is definition given to these control centers. And we see, oh, that's not us, it's something else. And we're able to, in silence, see around it. Some spiritual writers say, eventually you can look over the thing's shoulder, the fear, the, the, the attachment. You're able to look over its shoulder and see God. And God's saying, that's not you. 
Let's go to who you truly are. And you go beneath that and you're able to let that go. This is what silence does. Silence, uh, what Thomas Ketting calls divine therapy begins to take place. Divine therapy. For some of you, you're like, that sounds a lot cheaper. It is. It's a lot cheaper. <laughs> this is how uh, uh, Felina Hewitt describes this happening in her book, Silence, a book on silence uh, called Mindful Silence. She says this. This is how, how divine therapy showed itself up in her life. She says, emotional wounds of a lifetime that I stored in my body and psyche began to heal. My overattachment to power and control and affection and esteem and security and survival began to loosen. My false self came into view. As I learned to self-observe, I was empowered to self-correct. The consequence is being able to live more often from my true self. Now, avoid the temptation to go self-correct, self-observe. Like what? You're with, remember, you're with God doing this. All of this in the presence of God, all of this happens with God's uh, presence. All of this happens with God showing us the definition of who we really are and who we're not. And all of this happens um, with, this is divine therapy. Now, you might be wondering, okay, what does this look like practically? Do I need a special chair, a special blanket, a shawl? Like, what do I need? I would suggest just a few things. Because it's hard to give you a list because you'll be thinking about the list the whole time. So I'm just give you a few things on how to start this practice. And we're going to unpack some of this later on in a follow-up podcast. But let me suggest a few things. First, dedicate regular time for silence and solitude. Start dedicating right now. Like, make a commitment. This cannot happen through listening to a sermon. You must practice it. And you must practice it alone. I suggest that you practice it in stillness, not walking, not biking, not driving. Eventually, you'll be able to stage up to the place where you can do this and do something else, possibly walk or something. But you, at the beginning of this, you need complete mind, body, stillness, solitude, and silence. I recommend that you start with five minutes. Set a timer. Five minutes. But if you do start with five minutes, be warned. It'll feel good that you did five minutes, and so you're like, oh, I did five minutes. That was so hard. It's actually harder than you think. But be warned. The first five minutes is the flushing out of your brain. And so that first five minutes will not be enjoyable. You will not end that five minutes and like, oh, God, you're with me. That was amazing. It, won't ha- it probably won't happen, to be honest. It'll be, the first five minutes will be shopping lists, to-do things, emails that you have to, things that you said that you probably shouldn't have said, like what someone else said that they shouldn't have said. All that stuff will just come flooding in your mind. You're like, oh, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off for the first five minutes. But practice it. Keep doing it over and over and over again. Eventually build up to seven, eight, ten minutes um, my hope, what I try to do is I try to do 20 minutes a day in the morning before anything else, and I hope to grow into 20 minutes twice a day and a few retreats throughout the year when I'm just alone. So dedicate just regular time, five minutes a day. Now, it's really good that this is built into bread, our daily reading program. B is be with God. Use that time. Weave it into your time in the morning where you go, five minutes, silence. Grow that to hopefully 20 minutes and then start reading the text. The next is once you do start your time, breathe and relax. You have to breathe. This is really, really important. Uh, The masters say to sit in an upright chair. 
don't sit in a lounge chair. I mean, you can, but I've grown to that, but sit, sit, try to sit attentive in a, in a chair. Some people even say, sit on the edge of the chair. So you're trying to be more attentive. Sit with your shoulders back, your diaphragm open, breathe through your diaphragm. Place your palms on your lap and breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth, you know that. And breathe and relax. And then the third step is be with God and God alone. Now, for this point, there are about a hundred different places to go. There are so many different ways to do this, to actually practice silence. Some people recommend a prayer word or a sacred word. Like find a sacred word like thank you or beauty or love or um, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is one of, the, my fa- one of my favorite prayers to do. And you try to center your mind on this word. Some people say, um, allow God to bring up a memory of when you were really close with God. And, and when you fixate on this memory of being really close with God or a moment where you felt delight, look around and ask Jesus, are you here, there, anywhere around this, this point in my life? What, what do you want me to know about this? Other people recommend that you, you do a breath prayer, which is also another where, and we'll do this at the very end of our time, where you pray through, be still and know that I am God. You can also ask Jesus about your distractions to see what your distractions are revealing. You can ask Jesus what, you want, what he wants to show you or say to you. There is so many ways to do this. Um, and I, and I, I commend to you a few different books, and we'll have them on our website this week. Now, how I want to end is during our pre-gathering prayer, I think this is really, really important. Someone had a, a word from God that said, um, my, God saying to us, my presence is a safe place. And I think that's how I want to leave our time. When we are in God's presence, this place is safe. Now, I know I'm talking about attachments. I'm talking about deep-seated fears. Like, that doesn't feel safe. God, when you're in the presence of God, the point is to be with God and know that God knows how to hold us. God knows how to be with us. God knows how to take and carry all of the stuff that we try to carry alone. The point is to allow God in. This is called uh, divine consent, where you say, God, I welcome you in. I want to connect to the, the ground of being which is our creator God. I want to, I want to connect to the, the, the source of everything, to be present to a God who is always present with us. I'm going to invite the worship team, the band back up. And as we do, we're going to close with silence. So if you could, uh, I don't know where you're at. I don't know how crazy your house is right now, but try to sit up wherever you're at. Try to put your, your shoulders a little, a little back, open up your diaphragm a bit, your... And, and let's breathe, and I'm going to uh, lead us into a, a, a practice of silence that you can actually start doing this week. It's very, very simple. It's really, really beautiful. It's basically, I'm going to say, we're going to take a deep breath, and we're going we're gonna to pray this in our, in our minds. Um, be still and know that I am God. And then we're going to be silent, and then we're going to say, be still and know. And we're going to be silent we're going to breathe, and we're going to say, be still. And we're going to breathe, and we're going to be silent. And then we'll finally say, be. This can take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 5 minutes. 
It's a very, very, very good practice to begin with. Let's do this now. Would you put your, just open your hands, take a few deep breaths. Say this in your mind, your heart with me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still. Be. Lord, you are the source. In you we live and move and have our being. Every single part of you is good. Many of us are so tired and so weary. Some of us are tired and weary of, from activism from this last year. Some of us are tired and weary because of the onslaught of hatred and anger. Some of us are tired and weary because we work really hard to keep our lives and our families afloat. And some of us are tired because we tried all that and we still couldn't do it. Hear our fatigue, Lord. Hold us in your presence, Lord. Begin to, through silence and solitude, restore us. So it feels like we just get to align with your will instead of trying to find it everywhere. That we can align with you, God. We want our heart rate and our heartbeat to match yours, Lord. Our breath to match your breath. Our pace to match your pace, God. And then send us out into the world again, restored people ready to do all those things of renewal, all those things as peacemakers, but from a place of peace and not striving. In Jesus' name, amen.